Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. In this episode, authors of The Pragmatic Programmer Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt share how the book has evolved and what has remained unchanged over the past two decades. Created for developers by developers, GoTo gathers the best minds in the software community. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in Chicago, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conferences YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. We started the conversation by asking Andy and Dave why they wrote the original book 20 years ago. So Andy and I had been um, consulting for a number of years in the 90s. Um, and during that time, we typically got involved in projects that were uh, needed help, basically. I mean, no one brings a consultant into a, pro- a project that's just about finished. So we get involved in these projects and typically would find the same problems in every single one. We'd find projects where people didn't test, where there was no uh, communication between team members, where no one agreed on the requirements. Um, even projects where no one actually knew how to build the software. Every single build was different depending on who did it. And so we started putting down some notes on what we should be saying to people. And the idea would be that we would give them those notes even before we arrived, as a kind of short circuit of the boring stuff and get into the interesting stuff. Just like a white paper. I mean, this, we didn't intend this as a book or a big project, right? This was just a little, as Dave said, just some notes, just a little white paper, a little, a little job aid to send out you know, ahead of time. Yeah, wasn't it even actually going to use that newfangled thing called the web at the time? So anyway, so we put all this stuff together and as in most things in software, what was going to start off as like a 20-page, you know, quick note, uh, quickly got to 50 and then 100 pages, and we started realizing that this wasn't what we originally thought it was going to be. And uh, the suggestion came up that we should turn this into a book, and we had no idea what that meant, and we had no idea whether what we had was any good or not. So we had a, a cunning plan. What we're going to do is we're going to choose the best publisher for software books, and we're going to submit our little 100-page manuscript to them. And they would, of course, reject it. But when they reject it, they would tell us what was wrong with it. And that way, we'd be able to fix it up and, you know, actually make something out of it. And like all good plans, this one failed, um, and it failed because they accepted it. And so we started working in earnest on Pragmatic Programmer with Addison Wesley in, I guess, end of 97, beginning in 98, sometime right about then. Yeah, beginning beginning in 98, I think it was. Right. And it took about, what, two years? 18 months, two years? Yeah, about about a year and a half of of mostly full time. So we stopped consulting at the time and and worked full time on the book. And if, if you've never written a long-form work before, if you've only ever written emails or blog posts or articles, uh, it's quite a different experience when you're working on something that's going to end up being 200, 300 pages long. And uh, we could have possibly done it faster or uh, more efficiently, perhaps. But you know, we, Dave and I would literally get into um, heated discussions over individual words. 
over the structure of a sentence. Not because we're just both control freaks, although, I mean, there's, <laughs> okay, this might be a little bit of truth to that, but because it mattered, because, it, I mean, it makes a difference, right? You know, you call this this thing or you call this something else, and suddenly, you know, it makes a difference to people. It makes a difference to readers. Um, we even had to put some disclaimers up front in the preface saying, all right, we're going to use a couple words a little differently from common usage, and here's why. So we really kind of tackled it at a very fine-grained level because we really wanted to get it right. Um, you know, you can, you can push patches and releases to software a lot easier than you can to a, a, a mass market, you know, hardcover paperback book. So we really kind of wanted to get it as, as right as we could with what we knew at the time. And one of the other reasons it took a long time is that we settled into a scheme where uh, we tried initially both of us writing a, a section, and that was just miserable. So instead, what we would do is uh, one of us would write it, and then the rule was you handed it to the other person, and if they loved it, you were done. If they had just minor changes, okay, you make them. If they had major changes, then suddenly it was their responsibility, and they would take that section on and then pass it back to you to do the same thing. And we had sections that probably went through that process five or six times. Oh, at least. Um, I mean, not a lot, but there, there were a handful yeah. that were they were clearly so, problematic trying to find our right voice and really articulate what we wanted to say well. But anyway, I mean, the original question was, you know, why did we do it? And the why was that we wanted to get uh, just some of these, what we thought were pretty basic ideas out there. Um, and we finished, we published it, and that was a kind of about it. Uh, we weren't like, you know, we're not marketing people, and we didn't get out there and, like, you know, do the book tour or anything. But it just kind of caught. It was kind of interesting to see what happened. Um, and fairly quickly, it got to be quite a popular book, um, which surprised us. And as a result, uh, well, as a result, we met you fine folks, because uh, once that happened, we started getting conference invites. And I believe the very first conference Andy spoke at was in uh, Aarhus, wasn't it? I believe so. One of the early, like like the second or third Jau, it was, it was quite early yeah. in the uh, uh, in the game. There, we were up on the balcony. In fact, that was also the conference at which I learned to take my shoes off when I was speaking, because you put us onto a uh, makeshift stage, which I think was made out of old fruit boxes, um, and it was very very squeaky. So uh, I took my shoes off so I didn't make as much noise. And I discovered that I speak better with my shoes off. I think I'm more connected to the earth or the fruit boxes or whatever. So that was that. Uh, we then got involved in the, the Agile, uh, the Manifesto for Agile Software Development, uh, which is turning out to be a relatively controversial thing nowadays. Um, and then we basically just got back down to, to doing development for a while. Well, and, and more writing, because right about then, too, uh, we were working on a project for a client, and uh, it was a, a sort of data mining, markety thing. And the um, situation being what it was, we needed something that was sort of like Perl, in that you could get in there and you know put together a prototype really fast and get fast feedback from the client, turn it around real quickly. But uh, Perl, especially at the time, had really no... Um, nice features for encapsulation or, or object orientation. So it's like, geez, wouldn't it be nice if you had something 
kind of like Pearl, but, but cleaner and easier to work with. And we hunted and looked for a fair while. Um, and, you know, every couple of days, every week, Dave would send me a link. Hey, what about this? You know, I, I stumbled across this thing. What do you think? And, well, no, that's that has this wrong with it, or I don't like this aspect of it, or, or whatever. You know, programmers are very uh, particular about their programming language. Yeah, but I mean, you still use Vim, so, you know. Yeah, you know, old habits. Old habits die hard. Yeah. Um, and so one day, uh, you know, Dave sends me this link to this thing that he, he stumbled across uh, out of Japan called Ruby. And I'm looking at it going, hmm. Huh. All right, this this looks promising. This 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 could be something, and one thing led to another. Um, we we loved the language uh, right out of the gate. Thought this was ideally what we needed for this particular client, but also something we could use in general. You know, part of our consultant's secret weapon chest. Uh, but the drawback was there was no um, documentation on it uh, in English. The only doc that existed was in Japanese at the time, and neither Dave nor I uh, speak any Japanese, although I think you tried to learn it at some point. Oh, I gave up. My head just can't handle it. No, it's, it's funny. I have this problem. I can't hear things properly. Um, I can't hear English properly. Like If I'm at a party, I, I have to lip read. I can't actually hear what people are saying. And I could not differentiate the sounds in in Japanese. I tried the same with Chinese, exactly the same. You know, my teacher would go, not ch, th, and I wouldn't be able to hear the difference. You know, so no, I could never learn Japanese. Fortunately, we're as we're reading through the, the Ruby source to try to find out, okay, what does this actually do in the circumstances? Um, we were delighted to find it was very well written, very concise. You could you could literally just follow the chain of execution and get a good understanding of what the language was doing at a fundamental level. So uh, I forget how it came about, but somehow one of us got the bright idea that, hey, maybe we should just write a little tiny language reference um, for this cool new language. Well, no, it's, it was because we were going to, uh, we had an idea for another book. We wanted to write a book on executable design, which nowadays would be called, I don't know, Cucumber. Um, and we were looking around for a language in which to express this. And the language we turned up with was, was Ruby. And we found that when we started writing all the stuff about um, expressing uh, your ideas in code using Ruby, we'd spend a lot of time explaining the Ruby code and not the actual subject of the book. So we uh, thought, well, let's separate that out and create a separate thing, which was kind of like, I think the in initial idea was going to be like a couple of appendices, which were describing the Ruby language. And it was going to be small. It was, I mean, this is, again, the key point, right? The, just a little thing. Tiny thing. Yes. 600 pages later, um, <laughs> we kind of finished that. Uh, so, yeah, I guess the problem is actually once you write a couple of books, I think either you swear you'll never write one again, or you kind of get into this thing where it's... Um, I guess it's called masochism, but you get to enjoy the process. You get to enjoy the fact that you are forced. I mean, normally in your, in your normal life, you take shortcuts. When you're programming, you know, you don't always understand 100% of what you're doing. You know, you just like, you know that this particular thread works or this particular library is good for doing this. And you just like plow through it. And that's kind of not very satisfying. I mean, I much prefer to understand what I'm doing. And if you're writing a book about something, well, you better understand what you're doing. And so writing books like that is a really great way of 
making sure you just fill in the gaps. You can't paper things over. Um, so we kind of got addicted to that. Um, and we got so addicted to it, we ended up writing, uh, creating our own publishing company. But that's, I just want to emphasize that. I mean, it's still, I think, one of the best ways to learn any subject is to write about it. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a book. Or, or, or to speak about it. Or to speak yeah, about it. But, uh, you know, one of the first things I do if it's a new uh, uh, language or, or something I'm trying to figure out, I'll make myself a cheat sheet. Right, because you know I'm a novice at this language. You know, how do you do uh, assignment? How do you call a, a function? How do you do currying? What you know, whatever the thing is, and just start making a cheat sheet. But it's that act of writing down those important bits that oh, how do you do that again? You know, you write it down, then you go back and look at it a few times, and that really helps kind of uh, cement it as you're working with it now. And it's kind of an easy path from that. You know, once you start taking notes. And start understanding that, and understanding the the interconnectedness of the bits of the system, and then suddenly, you know, out of nowhere, a book pops out. Um, it's not quite that easy, but you know, it kind of feels like that sometimes. Yeah, but Clark has an interesting approach to that, where he he teaches himself a new language by writing tests, and uh, that means that he always has kind of a reference, if you like, to to what he's been doing. So anyway, many years then pass. Um, and it comes up to be the, what, the 20th anniversary of the initial book. And that fell in 2020. So there's a lots of twos and zeros in that, which we took to be auspicious. Um, and so we... What happened? Uh, we, we, actually got a, uh, we actually got a request from the publisher, as we do every so often. They're like, Yeah, hey, I was going to say, we have one every two years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know... Uh, it's up for a reprint. You know, they, they print a whole batch, they run out of stock. It's like, well, it's a reprint coming up. Do you have any errata that you want to address? And then, as, as Dave said, we started noticing, you know, the, 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 the clock on the wall. It's like, huh, gosh, it's been 20 years. Maybe we should do something about that. Um, you know, getting back to, to, I think, the first question, why did we, we write the book? The first one was to solve developers' problems that were that were common, the things we were seeing in the world that people were doing that, gosh, that hurts. There's an easier way to do it. Try doing it this way. And 20 years later, it's been very instructive to see how much is exactly the same. Nothing has changed. You know, the, the, the names have changed, the tech has changed, but the, the, the problems, the wrong approaches, uh, the things that cause us difficulty are largely identical. There's some new players on the scene. There's things that we have to worry about now we didn't have to worry about as much 20 years ago, security, privacy, you know, these sorts of issues. Concurrency. Concurrency, new technology uh, issues. Not even not just new tech like a new language or a new framework, but you know, new fundamental ways of doing things, you know, more concurrent applications, um, running builds in pipelines instead of having that old build machine in the corner. So yes, the obvious tech changes, um, there's the societal changes that have happened. But there's an awful lot that's, it's just still us, it's still people, and we're still making, you know, very similar to mistakes that we were making 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really interesting is that you're right. I mean, the, the, the biggest changes in the book are largely uh, tech, um, not being uh, prescient. Obviously, we made a couple of bad calls with tech, and some of the references to tech we made were just totally out of date. But I think, to me, the changes that I'm proudest of is changes that are based on, although people are kind of the same, um, they're different, too. Uh, people are 
I think, more aware of the impact that software has. Um, back then, software was still kind of like, you know, it was there, it was really important, but it wasn't something that people in general talked about. Well, no, no, you could be at a, at a cocktail party, right? And someone says, what do you do? And you could get away with saying, oh, I'm in computers. Yeah. And yeah, that was yeah. that was generic enough. It's like, oh, okay, fine. Don't want to hear about it. You'd say that now and they'd, they'd look at you like you were, you know, <laughs> not quite right. It's like, well, well what do you do exactly? Because right, it's, exactly. it's much more yeah. accepted. Yeah. If you think about like with the COVID-19 stuff, um, I think Bob Martin made the point that uh, what we're doing now and the way the world is handling that is to a large extent uh, predicated on having things like this video conferencing system that we're talking over. You know, there are, I mean, nowadays there are open source versions of just about anything. And that allows people to be doing things like working at home, having their own tools locally. It's an amazing world. Um, but with all of that comes a whole bunch of responsibility. And one of the things we wanted to bring out in the book is the fact that as developers, we can no longer just do the old Nuremberg defense of, I was just obeying orders. You know, we actually have to be conscious of the stuff that we're doing and try to anticipate. I mean, we'll never be able fully to anticipate, but try to anticipate bad consequences as well as good consequences of the stuff we're doing. There's very much a social responsibility that developers have now taken on. And part of the cost, I mean, being a developer, I think, is probably one of the best careers there is. I love it. But at the same time, it comes with a price. It comes with a price of continuous learning. If you're trying to keep up, you have to keep up with what you're doing. But it also comes with a price that what you do is no longer just like playing in, in the basement and creating, you know, sprites that move around the screen. What you're doing is changing the world. And you get, you really don't get too many opportunities if you get that wrong, you know. So you have to think very carefully about the roll-on effects of what you're doing. Uh, that's something we're only just beginning to work out. Uh, but I think it was important enough that that became the last uh, chapter in the book. Well, I exactly. And it, it's kind of funny because it reminds me, you know, when you look back at the um, stories of the early ages of industrialization, you know, the stories from the factories were pr pretty horrific. You know, you had young children working in the machines. There were no safety mechanisms. You know, a lot of large-scale uh, uh, tragedies because there really wasn't any concept of worker safety because it was all new. Um, you know, as, as a civilization, we didn't really quite know how to handle that yet. And I think that's where we are with, you know, information technology and, and computer science and all. It's still new to us. I mean, the whole field is, depending where you count from, 50, 60 years old, you know, on that order. Um, it, it's embryonic. You know, we, we know nothing yet. We're just starting to figure out the impact of these things. So, you know, when we first wrote the book, you know, it was barely out of the days of you could type VI main.c and compile your a.out and woo, you know, make your sprites go a couple of years later. And that was, you know, that was sort of that. And now, you know, what, a couple lines of code and you could be part of toppling a government or starting a revolution or, you know, any number of things really positive or really negative. It's it's kind of all right there and largely under our control. And we don't really know how to handle that yet. We're getting there, but we're just starting. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to fall into the um, 
do what's fun trap, you know? And quite often the problems that were given are kind of interesting problems. How can you have a billion people exchanging messages in real time? You know, not a trivial problem. And a whole bunch of people will spend a whole many hours trying to work through great solutions to that without thinking too much about, well, what actually happens when they do, you know? Um, well, and then you can get like an, like an arms race situation, right? I and mean, we've always had that with something as, as innocuous as spam. You know, someone figures a better way to deliver a malware package to you. And then here's a defense. And then there's a way to get past the defense and so on. But now that's, that's amped up because you can now do the, uh, you know, incredible getting more and more realistic every day, the deep fakes, where did that person really say that? Now, how do you detect mm. that? You know, you used AI to create this. Now, what do you use to detect that that has happened and declare that this was fraudulently made? And then, you know, on it goes. You're right. It's just actually kind of depressing because as we've been talking, I've been thinking about all the bad things that could actually happen right now, given our reliance on computers, particularly as we're all encapsulated in our dungeons. We should move on to something more cheery. So, I mean, what for you is kind of like the funnest part of the new book? I really enjoyed the fact that we were able to keep a lot of the old stories. Um, because as this book first came about, a lot of the content came from things that we would do out in the field talking to customers. We'd come up with these little anecdotes about stone soup, about boiled frogs, about, you know, all these, these sort of little memorable bits to help get the message across. And the things that we were describing, you know, again, we might have to change the tech a little bit, but the principles were still sound. So we were able to keep a lot of these uh, uh, metaphors and colorful stories going. And to me, that was really cool because a lot of the things that we talked about in the first edition have become part of the, the global conversation about programming. You know, people mention the dry principle literally all the time. And that was from the first edition. They get it wrong, but they mention it. <laughs> they get it wrong, but they mention it. Um, and and that was that was another good uh, uh, side effect of this twentieth anniversary edition. We were able to clarify things that people got wrong. So as Dave mentioned, you know the dry principle, people reduced to oh, don't copy and paste. Well, it's not about that. And you need to read the book to find out what it is about and how to use it effectively. Um, things that had happened in the meantime, like uh, our involvement with the Agile uh, Manifesto. It pains me grateful so much these days to see people take the, the wrong approach to what they claim is Agile. And, you know, literally I've had people come up to me and say, oh, yes, we're Agile. You know, we do one or two scrum practices and we use Jira. So hey, we're asking. oh, and we don't and we don't write documentation and we don't write documentation. Yeah, baby, um, yep. you know, completely missing the the whole point that it's about fast feedback. It's about doing something small, getting feedback, and steering. And it has nothing to do with any particular you know Scrum or XP practices or or anything else. It's about organizing your work and getting fast feedback. That's the central you know, tenet, the central core to it. So we were able to put a, I initially, initially, when Dave and I started this, I wanted to say, okay, let's just not even talk about Agile at all. Let's just leave it out of the book. Let's just, just move on and talk about the, these technical and these you know, sociological issues. But we had to put uh, at least a few things in there. And so we tried, as with the dry principle, we tried to clear things up a little bit. It's like, all right, here's what this really means. And here's how you can use this effectively and actually get work done, you know, in a better way, better fashion. That's really, 
to me, that's the funnest part of the book is taking a murky subject, whether it's uh, agile, whether it's concurrency, whether it's uh, you know whatever, and trying to distill it and clarify it so that people will read it and go, oh, that's what everyone's talking about. I get it now. My funnest part actually was after the book was written, because um, I have always wanted to get Pragmatic Programmer uh, done as an audiobook, and it has always been, I don't know, a daunting job. And the natural thing would be for Andy and myself to read it, and we just didn't want to do that, the whole thing. Um, and turns out um, we know someone who is an actress who is happy to be the voice of the book. And so we put together the audiobook um, using her in a kind of interesting way. She kind of breaks the the idea of narrative because every now and then as the book she will stop and ask questions and things like that which was very interesting to do um but the funnest part of it and this is going to sound so trivial it's it's ridiculous but it still was fun uh at the very beginning of the book we have a story about the lawns in eton college in england about how they are kept so so pristine and uh, the story is about a tourist interviewing the gardener. So um, I wanted to get voices for that. Now, getting an American voice for the tourist was easy. I'm surrounded by them. But getting a, uh, a good English voice for the gardener was tough. And I thought, well, this is the internet, so we must be able to find somewhere. And sure enough, there are services where you can buy 30 seconds of someone's voice. And it's dirt cheap. So I went and I read through, I went through like maybe, I don't know, a hundred different voices until I found exactly the one I want. And I sent him the script. And next morning I woke up and in my inbox was uh, a couple of WAV files that had, you know, a couple of readings and different things. I just thought to myself, you know, we really have arrived at an amazing time where one day I can think, I need someone with an East London accent to read this. And the next morning wake up and five dollars poorer, I have exactly that it's uh and again that's due to software so i think in the midst of all the hassle we need to be quite pleased that we are doing some stuff right thanks for listening to this episode of the goto podcast head over to gotopia.tech for lots more content from the brightest minds in software development